Welcome to Episode 9 of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen Story. I'm Glenn Gordon. So you continue at Freedom both doing FS Cast and managing blindness products until 2013. And then, to put it in an inelegant way, it feels like you got downsized. I got downsized. So it was something that I thought may well happen. I had a number of ideas for blindness hardware products, but I think it's fair to say that Freedom was placing a lot of emphasis on the low vision market. So I was told one day that really there wasn't a need for a VP of blindness hardware. And the initial proposal was that I would do FS cast. Basically, my position would be a a halftime position. And my concern about that at the time was that because I would be so strongly associated with Freedom's brand, it would be difficult for me to explore other options. It was kind of hemming me in a little bit. So we came to an agreement where I would do FS cast for six months to help me and Freedom transition, and that that would be the end of my run. In the interim, I set up Mosin Consulting. I had a good think about what did I want from life? Where do I go from here? It was a really big, challenging time. And I decided that setting up my own company that would be able to do a whole bunch of things like technology training, producing audio tutorials, even advocacy in government relations, getting into providing accessibility advice on apps and things. I thought that there would be enough to keep me busy. And because a lot of this work would be consultancy work, you can charge a consultant's fee. You sort of come in and out of things like that. So I was um, ramping this up. Inevitably, it was a slow start. And it wasn't easy. It was a it was a stressful time. But during that time, Freedom came under new leadership. I was then contacted with a proposal that was, would you come back and look after social media and do FS cast and essentially kind of play this brand ambassador kind of role? I had been going on for years about how I felt that Freedom should have a social media presence. It was not something that the leadership of the time felt comfortable with, but the new leadership did. And I think people understood that if they were going to do this, I might be the person to look after it and set it up. And my thing then was, well, I've got Mosin Consulting up and running and I'm kind of digging this gig, you know. So we came to an understanding that I would be able to do this brand ambassador stuff and continue Mosin Consulting, mindful that I would avoid any conflicts. Obviously, if I were offered consultancy work, say, for another Braille display manufacturer or another screen reader in the window space or something like that, then I would That would turn be that, weird. Yeah, that would, that would be unacceptable, uh, completely unacceptable. So we, we had an understanding about that. As I alluded to before, there was a period there where I wondered whether I was going to be able to pay the mortgage or even have a computer from week to week. You get used to a lifestyle based on your income, and then suddenly you've got to make allowances. But it was a really character-building time, and I'm now very grateful for it because it made me a much better person. And it opened up a lot of opportunities that I otherwise would not have had access to. And maybe I wouldn't have got together with Bonnie had that not happened either. So many questions spring to mind. Uh, I guess the first one is, how did it make you a better person? I don't know. I think I had a really good run. Leaving a job which was pretty high profile and high paying in 1999 and just landing the ACB radio gig within hours, you know, and then feeling that it was time to move and getting the human wear thing and then getting really dissatisfied there and and moving to freedom. I'd been very, very fortunate. And I suppose to some extent I made my own luck 
with the profile I'd built and and I work very hard, but it was a character building experience to really struggle. I had a real estate agent over here pricing the house, looking at maybe modifications I might try and make before putting the house up for sale. And all the time trying to put a brave face on it, do my Mushroom FM thing like nothing was happening and put out tutorials that were trying to put food on the table and and cultivate a client list and things all the time wondering where am I going to be living this time in six months. They say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it really got me thinking that I had obviously been through two marriages, one of which, you know, Amanda and I were together for 18 years and the other relationship was quite a lot shorter. I'm not necessarily, by the way, the kind of person who believes that a marriage has to last forever. I know that's heresy in some people's minds, but sometimes the best thing one can do for both parties is to move on and wish each other well. And I've been very fortunate in both cases that 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 was able to happen. And sometimes you hear people talking about a marriage that has ended as a failed marriage. And I don't necessarily see it that way. If you've had many, many good years or even some good years, if you've had more good years than bad, then the marriage to me isn't a failure. It's just a marriage that has run its course. If you have been married to someone from the age of, say, 21 or 22 until you die in your 80s or 90s, and you got to the point that you just hated each other, but you stayed in the marriage because you thought that's what you were obligated to do, that to me is a failed marriage. But you'd also be pretty stupidly lacking in self-awareness if you didn't take a few deep breaths and say, you know, let's have a really hard think here about what it is that I've contributed to these situations. And I know that I'm really driven and I can also be quite opinionated. And you? Yes, and not, not, not particularly easy to live with sometimes. So I product managed myself. And I, I wrote a <laughs> list of bugs, if you will, that I perceived in my code. And which are the priority ones and how do I fix them? And this sort of started because on my youngest daughter's third birthday, which was back in 2006, I was in a bar uh, drinking a bottle of wine and feeling really miserable. Uh, it wasn't long after Russell had died and, and just a lot going on. And I was sort of thinking of my little girl back home and thinking, what is all this? And this woman came up to me. And it's so surreal now. I almost wonder if I dreamed it, but I can't have because I don't believe in that sort of stuff. But she came up to me and she said, what's the matter with you? And I kind of gave her a brief synopsis of exactly what the matter with me was. And she just said, what you need to do is read a book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I said, okay. She said, Re read it. It'll help. And then she left. I thought that was weird. So I got The Power of Now by <laughs> Eckhart Tolle. And I kind of got what she was on about, which was basically – if you dwell on things that you can't fix about your past, which you can't because it's past by its very nature, you can't fix it. You're not going to make progress in your life. And you have to learn to live in the now because it's the now is the only thing we have. So I started trying to internalize this. And then at this time in 2013, I started getting a lot more into things like meditation. I'd been doing a bit of hypnosis before then. In fact, I trained to be a clinical hypnotherapist because I was so fascinated by what made it work that I took some time to, to do that. But so I, I read a lot about these sorts of things. And then Bonnie came into my life. Well, I knew Bonnie by then, but then she came into my life in a romantic capacity a at a point when I was thinking that I was going to spend the rest of my days in my dotage sort of, I don't know, tending to my virtual roses or something and being a quite happy recluse. I really was ready for it. I just thought, you know, I can, I, I'm going to spend some time just with me. I hadn't done that, you see. And that was, that was one of the biggest mistakes I made in my life. Moving out from living with my very attentive parents, especially my mum, uh, to living with Amanda. So that time when I really took control of my life and said, 
it's time for me to live by myself. Uh, that was a very good time for me, just not only doing for myself, which was really good, just the mechanics of making sure I got fed and, and ate well, but just just the space to think about who I was and the things about me that were, you know, that had merit and the things about me that really sucked and <laughs> needed to be fixed. And although I shun organized religion, I know there's a view among spiritual people who say that the universe delivers you what you are ready for. And I think the universe sent Bonnie to me in a romantic capacity to be my life partner. And I see Bonnie as the partner for the rest of my life. I feel certain of it. It's an intuition thing. At a time when I was ready, if I had met Bonnie earlier at some other time in my life, I don't think I would have been the person that someone as wonderful as her deserves. It's really all about living in the moment, isn't it, when things are so uncertain? It is. But it's it's a damn difficult thing not to worry about the future when you don't know where the mortgage is coming from or, or, or even the payment for the computer that's the very source of your meager revenue is going to come from. I have to say, the foundation of the blind, as it was then, was very good to me. And they actually bought a computer for me. It was a Mac, so I could work in both the Mac and the PC world. They bought that for me at a time when no one else would help me. And if they hadn't done that, I really don't quite know what would have happened. So I'm incredibly grateful to them for that. So you were very much on the edge. Yes. And the thing is, when I knew we were going to be having this conversation, I went back and I listened to some of the Mosin Explosion and other Mushroom FM shows that I was, was doing at that time. And as far as I can tell, you just cannot tell that my world is just on a knife edge. Maybe that was a fault of mine at the time that I just didn't let people know, you know, maybe Mushroom FM people know just how much of a knife edge it all was, just how close I was from not even being able to broadcast on Mushroom FM. When you were doing it, I mean, I realize it's hard to put yourself back there, but were you in the moment? I mean, you were probably busy enough at the time you were doing a show to really just focus on that and maybe have a vacation from all this other stuff. Yes, I love that about the radio. When I come down here and connect to the server, I'm really in the zone. It's like there's a whole new definition of time that takes place when you get in the zone. What were the mechanics of finding work in this, in this new world? Well, it was quite fortunate because of my work all the way back to ACB Radio, actually, you know, in main menu and, and my humanware contacts. I would put feelers out to people in the industry and say, if you just need a little bit of consultancy work done or um, tutorial recorded or things like that, then let me know. And sometimes I would sit in what looked like really promising interviews and nothing would ever come of it. But every so often you'd you'd get something significant. I also knew that in this part of the world, in New Zealand and Australia, there would be an untapped market for app accessibility. So I contacted a lot of people. You basically just put the feelers out to as many people as you like. And it's hard now because you've got to do it in a way that doesn't look like you're spamming people. Because if you look like you're spamming people, your email, even if it gets opened, may be deleted. PDQ. So it's a tough environment, but I was fortunate to have come with the experience and reputation. And gradually, it really did come right. You know, I actually ended up doing some work with some really large players in the iOS space in particular, who part of the NDA, the non-disclosure agreements I have actually preclude me from even mentioning who they are, but they're big players. So some of the apps that you use today that maybe once were horrible and are now accessible is because of work that we did together during the Mosin Consulting years. I take a lot of pride in that. So in the midst of all of this, I was one of many people who heard you do a relatively 
seemingly innocuous uh, show where you were in the United States and I guess sitting in a hotel room, Bonnie was your guest and you sort of co-hosted the explosion. My thought was, gee, they really do seem to sort of have a chemistry. I mean, I, I, I certainly was not thinking this was the start of something big, but I did think, oh, how natural they are together in interacting. Yeah. Bonnie first tuned into the Mosin Explosion in 2010 through some weird sort of fossil analysis or whatever. I was able to work out the day that she tuned in, and I put together a little compilation for her birthday with the background music of Ronnie Millsap's What a Difference You've Made in My Life. And I was able to go back and find the first Mosin Explosion. We have a tradition on the Mosin Explosion where new listeners get exploded, <laughs> and it's a good thing. Uh, so that was back in 2010, and she would chime in, and I, I would always think she just sounded so kind of vivacious and intelligent and interesting with the comments that she was making. And then in 2012, I was doing some work for Freedom in Boston, and it turned out that I would be there on a Sunday. It was after CSUN 2012, so I was leaving CSUN and then spending the weekend in Boston and then going out with uh, Bill Kilroy and co. So on the Sunday, I was going to be doing the show live from there. And it suddenly occurred to me, I wonder what it would be like to have a co-host. And it sounded like uh, this Bonnie Lanham person would be able to uh, hold her own and uh, let's let's see. So I contacted her and I said, would you like to co-host the show with me? And she said, oh, that'd be fun. You know, I haven't done anything like this before. What do I do? And I just, just come and talk. So I met her about 15, 10 minutes before the show started. And she came in with her seeing eye dog, Lizzie. And we had a brief talk about some of the things we could discuss. And then we just opened the mic. Bonnie, welcome. Hi. That's fantabulous to be here, Jonathan. Boston Bonnie. Boston Bonnie. Although Hi, everybody. somewhat a misnomer because you've kind of been all over the place. Yes, I'm a, a gypsy, a citizen of the world. I've you are. All over the place. We need to get you way closer to this microphone, oh, by the sorry. way. There we yeah, go. it's it's it's. There we go. There we go. Hi, See, here's the mic, better? and there's you. Right, there there's we go. me. There. Oh, this is nice. This is well, better. welcome aboard. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> We've just been talking about all kinds of interesting things that we're going to talk about during the show, like the fact that you own a racehorse. I do. I own part of a racehorse. Right. And we've established that it's the main part. It's the main part. Exactly. So I kept in touch with her. And when I was sort of on my own, we started to get closer romantically. And then when we started going public with the fact that we were now dating, and it was amazing how many people said, oh, I'm not surprised by that. You guys sounded so together on the show and I thought well that's really interesting that people picked up that that kind of vibe sometimes other people pick these things up before you do <laughs> yes or at least they can say they did yeah with hindsight <laughs> so so how do you date when when she's in the United States and you're in New Zealand lots of FaceTime and little messages during the day during her day on Haytel which was a thing not many people seem to use Haytel anymore and then we started to talk about her coming to live in New Zealand. And when I think about this, I still get really emotional because Bonnie has not been married before. She always thought that she would know when the right person came along. And she's the same age as me. So for her to take a chance on somebody who had got out of a second marriage to give up her job and her uh, friends in Boston and come all the way over here, that is, it's an incredible act of love, but it's also pretty brave. And this was also still when I was going through that bug uh, definition thing, and I realized that this amazing woman is just entitled to the best version of me that I can possibly be. I think the part that's most surprising to me is it doesn't sound like you spent much time together before she sort of packed it up and moved. Now, she did come over for a visit. And also, I was very cognizant of my kids. And so I wanted my kids to meet her. What they thought of Bonnie was really important to me. 
I knew that Bonnie would fall in love with the kids uh, as long as they were well behaved. Bonnie went out with the kids on her own for a bit of bonding time when she was here on vacation. And David nearly led her into a pole. <laughs> so that was a good start. Oh, well, well, you can tell how he felt yeah. about her. <laughs> when they got that, they went to uh, the kids, took her to a museum at my uh, suggestion and showed her some New Zealand culture and things. And then when they'd done that, Bonnie said, I'll um, take you all to McDonald's. You all like McDonald's, right? And they all went, Yeah. So uh, off she went to McDonald's and um, she handed over her Bank of America US credit card and um, it was declined and it turns out that Bank of America had suddenly started to see these transactions popping up from New Zealand and because that was so out of character for Bonnie to be traveling like that overseas they thought there'd been some sort of fraud going on so they put a hold on the card Uh, luckily she did have enough cash to give them their mcdonald's fix and sort it out with bank of america so that was the auspicious start that they got up to so we we did spend some time together um there she went home with a better idea of what it would be like being in new zealand and, and being in close proximity to me it was a strange time too because the day after she arrived, uh, we were talking about earthquakes, and I said, you know, we don't really feel them in our house. Wellington does get quakes, but we must have a pretty good foundation because I haven't felt a quake in the four years I've lived in this house. And within a few minutes, the ground was shaking and carrying on. So I'll tell you, and and that was the earthquake, it, by the way. I was, uh, I was gonna say it, it puts. I feel the earth yes, move into yes, a whole different. Yes, yes, uh, <laughs> She eventually made the move with Lizzie, and it was, it was a really special day. My um, my mum and my sister took me to the airport to meet her. It was a very very happy day. I never thought that I would believe again, but yeah, we got engaged. We got married in 2015, and I've never been happier in my life. Do you guys live on opposite ends of the day often? You've you've mentioned that you uh, don't necessarily live according to the clock. Well, that was one of the advantages of working with uh, a lot of American types that no one really might. In fact, people were quite happy if I got up at two or three in the morning because of the non-24 and came down here to my office and worked because that was a good time for all the Americans who wanted to be in touch with me. Bonnie's remarkable in that regard. I can wake her up and ask her a question and she'll be way alert and, you know, happy to answer and even get up and make a cup of tea or whatever. But then zonk, she's out again. I can't do that. So we make it work. And of course, now that I'm moving into this new job, I'm going to have to behave myself and and keep regular New Zealand hours. Do you find it hard to work nor- to live normal hours? Only in a technical sense, in the sense that sometimes... The non-24 can be a real nuisance. Melatonin helps to some degree, but it's not perfect. So there is that awful feeling when you know you've got to be up or or at a particular appointment at a given time and you're just feeling zonked. But I have experienced a lot of improvements. Even since those dark days of 2013, I've done a lot of things as I go through my bug list, and that includes going ketogenic, eating a very low-carb lifestyle, which has made a massive difference. I'm about um, 60-odd pounds now lighter than when I was at my heaviest, continuing with working on the meditation, and I gave up. Not so much I made a decision to give up alcohol, but as my meditation got deeper and deeper, I found that the alcohol was kind of interfering with it creating unwanted RF in the conscious. So (laughs) I remember, you know, having some wine one night and then I just didn't want it anymore. And that was back in the beginning of 2016. And I just haven't wanted it. So all of that has really helped a lot, actually, with um, my sense of well-being, my sense of focus, how I engage with others. I think I'm a much better person in that regard, too. And sleep. Yeah, so it's all it's all sort of come together with all the lifestyle changes that I've made. And it's hard to know whether meditation or the ketogenic lifestyle is the most important of these two things. But my parents have struggled with heart conditions and related issues for 
much of their adult lives, and I saw both of them go in and get quintuple heart bypasses within a day or two of one another, and that was a real wake-up call. And I started to really research this question of what should I be eating? And you would think that in the 21st century, there would be some scientific consensus about this. But there actually isn't, because you have people who on one extreme think you've got to eat vegan. Just take animal products out of your life and you'll be all right. And I've tried that. I was vegan for quite some time to see what I experienced. And then, of course, you get the view that has really fallen out of favor in recent times, although it has been pretty conventional for much of history, which is that you should eat healthy fats, keep your carb count way down, and that's the way to fuel your body. Because when you're eating fat, your body converts that fat into fuel, and that's the state called ketosis. And it's a very efficient way for your body to operate. And that's what causes you to lose weight. So we have been brainwashed for a long, long time with what, in my view, and based on my own life experience, is a myth that eating fat makes you fat. And there are so many good books on the subject. There's one book that actually summarizes it right in the title, Eat Fat, Get Thin. It's by a cardiologist called Dr. Mark Hyman, who used to be scathing about ketogenic diets. And he said they were a fad, and he cautioned his patients against them. And then he realized that the conventional medical advice he was giving to his patients was not working. And in fact, it was doing them damage. And he started to see that when people took up these ketogenic diets, not only did they lose weight, But they cured all kinds of illnesses, including type 2 diabetes, actually reversing diabetes in some cases. And that interested me. There was just this body of evidence. And I read the science and I thought about it carefully. And it made sense. And when I first started to do this, I thought, how the heck am I going to manage without fruit juice, without bread, Without pasta, I like a good lasagna, all these things. And I thought, this is just too restrictive. And of course, things like cookies and that kind of thing. Obviously, that's off the menu. Nobody thinks that's particularly healthy, even though your taste buds get used to them. And when I first started to do it, it was really bad. You know, I got all sorts of weird headaches and I felt awful. And the books I was reading and I read quite a few of them before I even attempted this, warned me that this would happen and that if you could just ride out the turbulence, as it were, then things would get much better. And there were times when I nearly gave up on it and I thought, this is just too much. And then suddenly it was kind of like the turbulence evened itself out and we were smooth flying again, but it was even better than smooth flying. It was like this bliss, this really good way to feel And I've got so much energy now, and I feel fantastic. I very seldom get sick. And when I do the medical and I get a checkup and they inevitably say, man, what are you doing? You know, what's your secret? Because all your signs, your vitals are so good. And when I tell them that I'm doing the low carb, the ketogenic thing, Some people are genuinely surprised. I have had a few people at the beginning of the journey who said, you are, you know, doing this dangerous thing, you know, but more and more now I come across doctors who understand that actually maybe this science that we've all been exposed to about low fat is what's doing us the damage. Because since people have been on this low fat kick since I guess Dwight D. Eisenhower had his heart attack. I think that's when things started to to kick in. We've got fatter and sicker. How were you feeling about the consulting business at the time you shut it down and decided to go to Ira? Could I, you have continued it for a while? Was it was it stable enough and paying you enough that it was viable? Yeah, I loved it. And I was doing some new things. One of the things I really enjoyed doing was I started this show on Mushroom FM called The Daily Fiber. And it was this kind of magazine show where I would play the music that Mushroom FM now plays. And then I would do 
little inserts with the latest technology news. And I got people who were saying the same thing for two reasons. They were saying, we want this as a podcast first because we don't have the ability to listen at the time the show's on, or we want it as a podcast because we do have the ability to listen when the show's on, but we don't want to sit through the music. And that was particularly the case with some younger people who didn't like the old fogey music. So I thought, I'm not going to do another podcast because I'd been doing The Blind Side for a while. That was a huge commitment. And I, I wasn't going to do another one that didn't have any clear revenue benefit. But then I thought, I wonder if people would pay for this. So I set up a premium podcast where people would subscribe to The Daily Fiber. And people did. I mean, that was actually a really good earner and was growing all the time as word of mouth spread. So there were all sorts of cool things happening. But then Ira happened. So um, that was that. So Ira happened for you in two different ways, right? It originally happened because you just, you were bowled over. Yeah. I used Ira at CSUN, and I used it for the first time to get from my hotel room to the exhibit hall. And with the hearing aids that I was wearing at the time, I found those things a real struggle to get through that noisy, echoey lobby where everybody's milling about and, and get to where I need to be. So the smoothness with which I was able to do that with Ira, it was a pretty significant day in my life. And that is one time where having a bit of a rep is useful because I found Suman, the CEO of Ira. They seemed to know who I was and they let me take it home. So I was very grateful for that because Ira wasn't actually in New Zealand at the time. And then I got a call from Kevin Fallon, who worked for Ira as their VP of sales and marketing. And auspiciously enough, he asked to talk to me on my 49th birthday, first thing in the morning on my birthday, and started to put the feelers out. You know, what kind of role might you want if you came to Ira? And so we had some discussions about that for a wee while, came up with the idea of managing Explorer Communications and, and also getting things up and running in the Australia and New Zealand market properly. And it was a decision that Bonnie and I talked long and hard about because I liked the autonomy of Mosin Consulting. I also liked the position I got myself in being a bit of an opinion. I don't know whether thought leader is the right term, but I was able to um, influence things by coming up with what I hope, even if people disagreed with me, were at least well-reasoned opinion pieces on my blog. And they might be about things that were happening in the world of iOS or technology in general, various other, you know, Braille, various other things. And they were having an impact. And I I liked that that lack of ambiguity that, you know, in a Mosin consulting capacity, I could do those things and actually affect some pretty cool change that way. What made you want to work for them, Ira? It was exciting. It was brand new technology. I believed in it. I still do. I feel that it's one of the most significant technological innovations to come along in a very long while. And to be at the ground floor at that very early stage of its development, you know, it's still very much in startup mode. They're working on various business models to make sure that the product is sustainable. And I thought that I may be able to have some useful input into that. How different was it as a company than the blindness companies you'd worked for previously? It was really different. The pace, for one thing, was crazy. Yeah, everybody's on Slack. Because Ira is a service as well, rather than a product that people buy, it was a lot more 24-7. So I would get some quite important Slack messages going off at all hours of the day that I really would need to tend to. And I was by no means an exception. They're a very committed group of people. I remember I came across some sort of software glitch with oh, something to do with the Australia and New Zealand sign-up form in the weekend. And I just pointed this out on Slack in the right channel, thinking somebody will get to it in the coming week. And uh, next thing I know, a couple of engineers are working on it on a Saturday night, I think it was, fixing this thing and patching it up. And it, it was a crazy pace. The culture's... A lot less formal, I think, and 
everybody just uh, knuckling down and doing whatever needs to be done. But you you were there for a, a relatively short time. Did you expect you would be there longer? Oh, yeah. I wondered if I might retire at IRA. But the thing is, I was sitting here, right here on the Group W bench. Sorry, that's a reference most people will not even get. Uh, I, I was sitting here uh, doing my work for IRA, and I got a call from a recruiting company, a, a senior recruitment agency thing. And they said to me, you know, did you know that the chief executive position for this organization is available? I said, I didn't really. I think I might have heard about it uh, vaguely. And they said, everywhere we go, your name keeps coming up. We'd encourage you to apply. Could we send you the position description and the strategic plan and um, various other things of that nature and um, have a look? So I said, you can send them to me. And the thing is, I think. I was ready to make a move back home. I know that sounds a bit kind of cheesy, but I've been largely focusing on international things for 20 years. And I wanted to come back and do something that was New Zealand specific. And I was really, I found myself grabbed by the idea that I might be able to use my skills to make a difference to people with disabilities in New Zealand getting employment the dignity of being able to answer the question, what do you do for a living with something positive, the morale boost that gives you, let alone the, the income and the ability to, to buy the things that you want in life, uh, to have some influence over making that happen for people. I love that idea. And at a more practical level, if I make a good fist of being CEO of one organization, then clearly CEO skills are quite transferable. And I had to come to terms with the fact that the skills I was using at IRA may not be so transferable, particularly when the assistive technology sector has really consolidated. There aren't many places to go in assistive technology anymore. So it all just seemed to come together and I allowed myself to go through the process. And then finally the crunch time came when I had to make a decision. And on the very same day that the offer came through, yes, you're the person we do definitely want to be our next chief executive. Bonnie was going through our mail with Ira, which we find is the most efficient way to process lots of mail. And I thought there was something quite unusual that she was talking about in the background. And then she said, Jonathan, you've been nominated to receive an honor from the Queen and the Queen's birthday honors. And I won't actually tell you the expletive. <laughs> I was very surprised. I'm not a superstitious person or whatever, but it just seemed to me things were coming together and that there was a sign there that this was all just sort of clicking into place. And so I do feel some sadness that I couldn't watch Ira grow a bit more, but I'll be watching it from the outside. But it just seems to be the right career move. And in the end, you have to do those things. You've, you've got to consider your viability as somebody who can keep earning. Do you have any, I don't want to say fear, because maybe that's too strong. Do you have any apprehensions about going into this new role? Whenever you start a new job, you don't know who anybody is. You don't know how the systems work. And you don't know what the issues are. So sure, I think... Anybody who doesn't go into any new job feeling a little bit of a sense of trepidation is a little over self-confident. And certainly when you're going into be the leader of an organization, an organization that has 22 offices across New Zealand, it's a privilege, but it's also one heck of a big deal. So sure, I know it's going to be a really significant challenge, but I'm excited by it. And I'll give it my best shot. To what degree do you think your blindness experience is generalizable to other disabilities? I think it's considerably generalizable because in the end, it's about conquering other people's fears and misconceptions of what it means to employ somebody with a disability, no matter what that disability is. 
people try and put themselves in the shoes of someone who has um, various disabilities and can't imagine how it's possible to do what they need to get done. And somehow we have to transcend that. We wouldn't be expecting somebody who suddenly went blind yesterday to go in and do this job or somebody who suddenly lost the, the use of their legs yesterday to suddenly do this job. What we're talking about is human beings are very adaptable, surprisingly so. And we're talking about people who are comfortable in their own skins, who are ready to work. And also, they tend to be very loyal to people who show them some confidence and loyalty. And I remember in my own situation, getting that first radio gig when I offered to do it for free for a couple of weeks, as long as they would just consider me. And they were very good to me. And what I hope to do is use my powers of persuasion and things to, to talk to large groups of chief executives like me and other employers to tell those stories and say, look, all a lot of these people need is a fair go, a chance to prove themselves. And really, what have you got to lose? And you certainly have credibility given your your path that we've outlined in this last eight or 10 hours. Do you mind if we play the lightning round? I realize anything with you, it's hard to be a lightning round, but these are just sort of random... <laughs> Random questions I have that don't that don't fit anywhere else. Okay. Blind versus sighted wife. Does it, <laughs> does it does it matter more broadly than simply you know who happens to be the individual that that you're most attracted to and compatible with? I, I think it depends on the individuals. I, For you, I don't think it would matter so much now, but I think I took advantage of Amanda's sightedness more than I should have and more than I would have had I been more independent and knew a little bit better who I was. I have to say that I like the fact that Bonnie and I, even though we grew up in very different parts of the world, have so many shared experiences because we are the same age and we talk about radio things that we loved when we were kids, uh, listening to Radio Moscow on the shortwave and the, the, the Russian jamming stations and things. And so I think there is a sort of a commonality of culture that may come from blindness that I personally really do like. Uh, Bonnie and I are, are just best friends as well as everything else. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? On balance, I think you'd have to put me in the extrovert column. Are you shy in social situations that, you know, where you don't know all the parties? No, I don't think I'm shy, but I think that I can be perceived to be shy because of my hearing impairment. So sometimes I may deliberately hold back from engaging for fear of not hearing the person if I'm in a crowded environment. So there might be people who perceive me to be either shy or arrogant because they think, oh, he thinks I'm not worth talking to. <laughs> and it's not that. It's just that I'm worried about hearing in a given situation. If you have a free afternoon or free day and you can do anything you want to and you have nothing planned, what do you gravitate to? Reading a book. Fiction or nonfiction? Usually nonfiction. I like to read a lot of biographies. And I've also been reading a lot of um, sort of self-development and... Um, leadership and health-related material in recent years. I feel like I'm coming out of the health and self-development phase a bit now, so I'm reading quite a lot on leadership and management right now for obvious reasons. But I do like a good David Baldacci, and Jeffrey Archer is my favorite author. I have to tell you, I know you, I know you wanted a lightning round, but this just goes to exemplify some determination that I have in me. I read a story once in a short story book that Jeffrey Archer wrote called Christina Rosenthal. And if you want a tearjerker of a story, I highly recommend it. Amanda and I were still together then, and I read this story. And the ending upset me so much. I was sitting uh, in bed reading this uh, in the middle of the night, blubbering like an idiot. And she woke up and she said, what the heck? What, what's the matter with you? Someone died or something. And I told her it was this 
book that I had read, and she sort of said, oh, for goodness sake, and I tried to get back to sleep. It affected me so badly, I had to find out if it was a true story or not. So I finally managed to get hold of Jeffrey Archer and ask him, is it a true story or is it not? And that's how determined I can be sometimes to just get to the bottom of the answer. Did he answer you? He did. He said it was a true story, but actually, in reality, the couple are living happily, and that was a very different ending from the story. So it made me feel a lot better, and it made me glad that I went through all of the hoops of trying to actually speak to him to find that out. That's a great story. To what degree are you a creature of habit? I am not. I I like some traditions, like a roast dinner on a Sunday night, but in terms of getting up at the same time, having the same breakfast, Taking the same route? No, that's definitely not me. When you're out in the world and you're needing to be social and it's a loud public area, how do you navigate that? With considerable difficulty. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I do my best to talk to people and, and use uh, audible clues and just really do the best I can. The new hearing technology I've just acquired is so exciting. Just recently, my son had his 21st birthday. This was Richard, for those keeping track. And he decided we were going to have it at a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> and that that was the kind of situation where I would just be dreading it because I know that I would be sitting in a corner, basically not able to participate due to the sheer noise level. And last night I was joining in the conversation with those around me. And it was, it was amazing. So the answer to the question may vary a bit now. But sounds like potentially for the better. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, Amanda, who's very, she was obviously at this at this function too, and she's very mindful of when I'm hearing and when I'm not. As is Bonnie, they they've both been amazing at kind of covering for me, uh, and and she was amazed at just how much I was participating in the conversation and and able to function in what was quite a noisy environment. You played the organ as a child. Am I correct? You are. Is performing music something that, that, that's been on your mind, or was this just a one-shot deal? I used to perform at the Auckland Town Hall sometimes for senior citizens and things like that. This is all as a result of originally getting this fun machine from the Radiothon that they, they raised. And I got called up by this, I guess, impresario person who said, we'd like to send you to Christchurch to play the shopping malls for the school holidays. So this was really cool because it was 1983. So how I was just 14 and I got $2,100 for that two weeks work, which for a 14 year old was just astoundingly cool. And so I did that. I played various gigs and things. And when my dad died, I actually bought an electric piano type thing, full length piano that can also double as like an electronic organ. And I play it a little bit for relaxation kind of as an outlet, but I'm hopeless now, hopeless. If I ever was any good, I'm certainly hopeless now. What was your favorite vacation? My wonderful honeymoon with my beautiful Bonnie. And we went down to this resort towards the bottom of the South Island And the resort has a lot of land to cover, so they have people who are driving these golf carts everywhere. And so anywhere we wanted to go, in the beautiful mountain air, we got married in June, so that's wintertime here in New Zealand. And we would just go on these golf carts all over the place. There was a spa, we had couples massages and treatments, and really just celebrated being in love and having found each other. No worries, blissfully happy, knowing that I finally ended up where I should have been. Favorite aspects of your kids? Heidi is a geek like me, and we bond over technology, and she wakes up early and and comes now that she's not living here. She comes to my house and watches the Apple events at five in the morning, and and we, we do all sorts of crazy things. Richard has just turned 21. He did, much to my surprise, a broadcasting course where he was pretty much the star student and uh, did a stint on Mushroom FM. He's now doing audio engineering and will learn a lot more than his dad ever did. And I'm just really proud of the young man that, that he's become. And David, 
has my sense of justice. One occasion I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, we were passing a supermarket and there was a guy outside who was asking for donations. And it's, it's pretty rare in New Zealand to see that. And David went over to him and started talking to him and said, you know, what, what is it that you actually need? And he said, I need nappies. That's what Americans call diapers for my young baby. And we just don't have enough. And so David went in with his pocket money to the supermarket and he bought a whole bunch of nappies and put them out to the sky and gave them to him. And he was only 16 or 17 when he did that. And I thought that's just such a wonderful thing for a kid to do. Yeah. yeah. And Michaela, she reminds me of her mum. She's got that sort of mode of speech, sort of sense of style. She, she's a really together young person. I'm proud of them all. You've parachuted and bungee jumped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My question is why? Well, why not? Well, I, I love the thrill well, of it. I, I, I was thinking, it's like, you know, if I parachute or bungee jump and I die, and for some reason there really is a God, and I'm talking to St. Peter, and how did you die? Well, I decided I'd parachute. <laughs> it's not how I would want to die. So so that's what immediately came to mind. I'd try me. anything once. Well, nearly. Parachuting was something I don't think I would do again. Sitting up there, I remember it was quite surreal, 12,000 feet up, sitting strapped to this really hunky dude with my feet dangling over the um, edge of a perfectly good airplane being ready to be sort of rocked off and out into the sky. That was kind of trippy. But it was cool when the chute opens and you're just floating around there. That was nice. And the Now, you did do it with someone, Yeah, right? yeah, tandem jump. Yeah, I, I know a few blind people have not needed a tandem jump, but I wouldn't be that brave. Okay, sorry, bungee jumping. Uh, but yeah, well, it's a New Zealand thing. It was invented here in New Zealand, and so I think most New Zealanders are ready to go. It was just, yeah, I enjoyed that. That's pretty, pretty uneventful uh, and, and fun. I actually jumped off the um, Sky Tower as well, which is the, at last I heard, the Southern Hemisphere's largest building, and they kind of strap you to the uh, top of the Sky Tower and you jump off in this controlled release. That is really cool. So I will ask you the cliche one as as closing. What do you want to be your epitaph? He loved his kids. He was a voice for the voiceless. He made a difference. And he was never hesitant to be in the arena. Thank you for taking the time to share all of this. I, I considered this to be a conversation of getting to know someone who I knew for a long time, but I only knew small parts of you. And uh, it was it was really nice to be able to, to talk through various aspects of your life. So thank you. Thank you for your thoughtful questions, Glenn, and for exploring this journey with me. I've really enjoyed it. In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen story was conceived, produced, and edited by Jonathan Mosen. Interviewing by me, Glenn Gordon. Thanks for listening.